It's time for Herd Mentality, the weekly episode where you control the discussion today on Locked On Bills. You are Locked On Bills, your daily Buffalo Bills podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. What's up, Bills Mafia? It's Joe Marino, author of Go Bills and Buffalo's Run, also the co-host of the Lockdown NFL Scouting Podcast, and I'm your host of Lockdown Bills. want to thank you for making Lockdown Bills your first listen every day, and a big welcome and shout-out to our everydayers. You know who you are. Those of you who never miss a single episode, I appreciate y'all being here very, very much. I'd also like to invite you to subscribe or follow for free on YouTube or wherever you listen to podcasts. We're part of the Lockdown Podcast Network, your team every day. Well, folks, I'm excited for herd mentality today. Per usual, you guys filled it up with some great questions. So let's dig into them. First one today comes from Chris. Chris says it's 2017 and Josh Allen is satisfied with his time at Wyoming and he enters the NFL draft. Where? And when does he get drafted? This is a fun question. As soon as this came through from Chris, my head started to spin, but I've went through the thought exercise and I have an answer for you today. Now, first, let's acknowledge that this was almost true. He actually, he, meaning Josh Allen, on the Like a Farmer podcast talked about this and he actually took his family out to dinner told them that he was declaring for the 2017 NFL draft. And then he went to sleep that night or tried to go to sleep that night and couldn't go through with it. He couldn't do it. And so he went back to Wyoming. He felt very much like he owed it to Wyoming to go back and felt burdened for his teammates and his coaching staff to give them another season. But it was very much a possibility that he would come out in 2017. And if he did, that would be challenging for the Bills for him to be their quarterback right now. And if you guys remember the 2017 NFL draft, the first pick was Garrett, Miles Garrett from the Cleveland Browns. That was the first pick. The number two pick was the Chicago Bears. They moved up to get Mitchell Trubisky, the quarterback out of North Carolina. And then, of course, later on, you had Patrick Mahomes get drafted by the Chiefs, Deshaun Watson by the Texans, right? That was kind of that draft. So where would Josh Allen have fallen in that landscape? Well, I don't think he would go number one. In fact, I can tell you that he would not have went number one to the Browns. I actually had a conversation with Hugh Jackson, the head coach of the Cleveland Browns, a couple of years ago, and we were both at an event, and there was some downtime. And I simply went up to Hugh, and I said, I introduced myself. I told him about the work that I did, and I said, look, I want to learn as much as I can about quarterback evaluation would you mind if I asked you a few questions? And so we talked about a bunch of stuff, but it ultimately came back to him disclosing a lot of information to me about the process that Cleveland went through both in 2017 when they drafted Miles Garrett number one in 2018 when they picked Baker Mayfield number one, which was also the year that Josh Allen came out. He said going back to the Miles Garrett year, they thought about some of the quarterbacks, but they didn't feel like they were ready to draft a quarterback. And obviously, Miles Garrett, a blue-chip pass rusher. Um, that makes sense. If you're not going to pick a quarterback, well, get yourself Miles Garrett with the pick. That was their thought process there. They just didn't feel like they were ready to draft a quarterback. Now, the next year, they did feel like they were ready to draft a quarterback. 
and their decision came down to Baker Mayfield or Josh Allen. And their process that led them to Baker Mayfield was, as Hugh Jackson explained to me, very simple. They thought Baker Mayfield was closer to his ceiling than Josh Allen was. And they didn't feel like they could wait, right? They didn't feel like they could wait for Josh Allen to develop, and they needed a quarterback that could come in and be close to their ceiling. Now, Hugh did admit that they agreed that Josh Allen's ceiling was higher than Baker Mayfield's, but they wanted the guy that could come in and be closer to what they're going to be sooner. And that's exactly what they got. Um, so I don't think he would have been the Browns pick. I, I know for a fact he wouldn't have been the Browns pick because I've talked to their head coach and he disclosed that information to me. Now, where I do think Josh Allen gets drafted in 2017 is number two to the Chicago Bears where they traded up for Mitchell Trubisky. And the reason I think that is because they were pretty risky with that choice of Trubisky, just a one-year starter at North Carolina, and that was it, right? Same thing with Josh Allen at that point in time would have been a one-year starter at Wyoming. Well, if you're going to do the one-year starter thing and you're not going to pick Mahomes, you're not going to pick Watson, right? They told us that when they didn't pick those players. I think Allen could have been the pick just based on them willing to kind of take a roll of the dice on an inexperienced player. But take the player, when you compare Trubisky and Allen, you pick the player with the better traits, and that is Allen. So I think Allen in 2017 would have been the number two pick in the draft. Now, you're probably thinking to yourself, well, Joe, in 2018, he went number seven behind after Baker Mayfield and Sam Darnold. Okay. Here's the big thing about Josh Allen going back to Wyoming. It didn't help him. He didn't play better in 2018. 18 than 2017. He was a better quarterback in 2017. And I think that's what cooled some people on Josh Allen was, well, we know that he's got a lot of physical upside, but he really didn't get better year over year at Wyoming. Why should we think that there's this big ascension coming despite a lot of physical talent? And so that's the process. Like going back to Wyoming didn't help Josh Allen get drafted higher. Now, I think it helped him get to the right place right? The bills, like all of it happened for a reason. And it winds up being very, very good. But at the end of the day, him going back, didn't help his draft stock. I believe Josh Allen would have been the number two pick in 2017. Instead, he winds up being the number seven pick after the bills traded up to get him in 2018. Um, and so there's, I, that was a fun question. I had to unpack it for you here. And, um, hopefully you can appreciate kind of my thought process there. And, and maybe it sounds crazy to think he would have went number two, but if the Bears were going to pick Watson or Mahomes, they would have done it, and they didn't. They picked Trubisky. They were picking a quarterback. I think they would have went with Allen over Trubisky. All right, the next one today comes from Jesse. Jesse says, who is the best receiver in the AFC East, Stephon Diggs or Tyreek Hill? I find it very hard to make this decision myself. Hill is more explosive, has had more yards than Diggs every year except 2020. However, Diggs is more versatile, and at first that seems like a weak argument, but I look at it like this. If you are in the red zone with one play left in the game, who would you rather have, Diggs or Hill? I'd take Diggs, but then again, if you're at the 50 with one play left, who would you take? Probably Hill. Diggs has better hands. Hill has better speed. Diggs is the better route runner. Hill just gets open. How do you rank them? Fun question. Fun question. It's, it's obviously very close. 
I'm going to give you an answer, but I think it's very close. So um, I don't have super strong convictions in my choice. But I lean into Diggs in a vacuum. I, I think he's a more complete skill set. I mean, Tyreek Hill is unbelievably explosive, gets open all the time. Vertically, he's unreal. Yards after catch, he's special. He can line up inside and outside like he's awesome. But Stefan Diggs, to me, feels like a, a just a generally a more complete wide receiver. Now, he doesn't have the elite runaway speed like Tyreek Hill does, but I think he's a more nuanced route runner that's more transcendent, if that makes sense. Other things that made me lean into Stefan Diggs is, well, Tyreek Hill has already told us that he's planning to retire after 2025, so I, I – I think that's something to be mindful of. Um, Tyreek Hill has been really, really productive, but he's always either had Travis Kelsey or Jalen Waddle with him, right? We've seen Stefan Diggs as the number one target in a top-tier NFL passing offense with Gabe Davis and Emmanuel Sanders as the number two options, right? Cole Beasley. I mean... Hill's been awesome, but he's always had either Travis Kelsey, who's, I mean, one of the elite offensive playmakers in the game, and then Jalen Waddle last year, who it, they doubled down on that speed dynamic. And I don't want to take anything away from Tyreek Hill, but I, I think that's worth mentioning in this conversation. So I lean into Diggs. That's no slight on Tyreek Hill. They're both, uh, they, they can both be pretty, um, I don't know what the word I'm looking for is they can be some type of way off the field with, you know, obviously different off the field, but Diggs um, can draw some odd attention. Right. And so, so can Tyree kill, but you know, Tyree kills had some off the field issues as well. That um, makes me want to lean into Stefan Diggs. So I picked Diggs, but it's close. I think if you asked um, Kyle Krabs, the locked on dolphins, he'll probably tell you Tyree kill. Next one here comes from Nikki. Nikki says, what is your favorite draft? or excuse me, non-draft off-season move, whether a new signing or extension, and one you have the most concerns about and why. Seems like we are close to being buttoned up roster-wise. So wondering your thoughts on best moves and the one that makes you nervous. For me, it's tied between Puna Ford and Leonard Floyd as my favorites, especially the value on Ford, and definitely nervous about the loss of Tremaine Edmonds as well as Ed Oliver's contract. I'm also weirdly nervous about losing Singletary from a durability, reliability standpoint, which I don't think is super com- a super common concern, but I've always loved him as a player. Good points there, Nikki. Um, I, I, I can understand your choices um, and, and agree with a lot of that. Uh, for me, my favorite uh, signing, which you gave me the option of an extension, a release, or um, you know, bringing on a new player, I would say my favorite signing is Jordan Boyer. Um, I didn't think he'd be back. He is back, and he's back on a deal that is half of what I thought he was going to sign for. So I think that's huge. I I love him being back, and I think it's something maybe we've forgotten about a little bit in this offseason that Brandon Bean's put together, but that is huge. That's the one that I really like. Obviously, for concerns, the low-hanging fruit is Tremaine Edmonds and his departure. Uh, To give a different answer, to bring something new to the table, I'll go with Deontay Hardy, the wide receiver. And it's not that I think he's a bad signing. Um, I just, I think there's a couple of questions that I have. First of all, he's small and has been injured, right? That's 
that's a tough combination. The Bills gave him a fairly reasonable contract, a multi-year deal. It could be just a one-year contract, but there's still a, a reasonable commitment made to him. And my question is, well, is he going to be this, the premier return guy? I don't know if that'll be the case. I think they're going to use Naheem Hines, especially as a punt returner. So maybe he gets their looks at kick returner, but you know, maybe they trust Naheem Hines more. I mean, Hardy's been uh, dynamic. He's had his share of big plays, but he's also had some ball handling issues, especially as a punt returner. And then when you think about him through the passing game, I'm not sure he's going to be a high volume target, right? I mean, he's small and gets injured a lot. That's not uh, a good recipe for a lot of volume. But even if he is healthy, is he going to be out-targeted by Diggs, Davis, Knox, Kincaid? Well, that's four. So at best, he's your fifth option in the passing game. What about Khalil Shakir? What about Trent Shurfield? What about James Cook? I mean, is there a world where Deontay Hardy is the ninth option in the passing game? I think that's going to lead to some questions about the contract that was handed out. So I think that's the one that gives me the greatest concern that isn't the obvious choice that is uh, losing Tremaine Edmonds and you know replacing him with um, some unproven players. So we'll see how that all pans out. All right, we got a bunch more to get to here today, but first I need to tell you about FanDuel. Baseball season is in full swing, and there's simply no better place to get in on the action than FanDuel, which is America's number one sports book, because right now new customers can get a no-sweat first bet up to $1,000. That's $1,000 back in bonus bets if your first bet doesn't win. Just go to FanDuel.com slash on to join today. And folks, I love betting over at FanDuel. They have a safe, secure, and easy-to-use website. They have great promotions every day. Baseball's fun to bet on, but so is this NFL future stuff. They have player props, over-unders for win totals, awards, week one lines. You can check it all out over at FanDuel. So don't miss your chance to snag that no-sweat first bet up to $1,000 when you join FanDuel today. Just go to FanDuel.com slash on to sign up. FanDuel, official partner of Major League Baseball. All right, the next one today is from Julius. Julius says, how dynamic can Dalton Kincaid and Dawson Knox be for the future of this franchise? Let's just say two years from now. My thoughts go to Gronk and Aaron Hernandez with Brady in New England and how lethal they were. I know, I know, there's only one Tom Brady, but Josh Allen is very good. I know there's only one Gronk, but Kincaid seems to have a lot of potential to be a great receiving tight end in the NFL, although it has to be proven. I know Gronk and Hernandez skill sets are different than Kincaid and Knox, but wanted to see if you could compare and contrast a little. Can we have a dynamic duo like that? Julius, I love the question. Um, and I would refer a lot of people back to the episode that I did with uh, Anthony Prohaska of Cover One, where we broke down 12 personnel and what this could really look like. And if it materializes like that, then absolutely, this is a, a big dynamic for this offense and this franchise moving forward. And I think your example of New England with Hernandez and Gronk um, is an extreme example, right? Potentially, you know, I know that we didn't get a lot of time, right? That that wasn't a, a situation that lended itself to a lot of years together, but we saw some some glimpses of what it could be over a few seasons and uh, certainly a lot to deal with. And I do think that the skill sets of Knox and Kincaid can put a lot of stress on a defense with how complimentary they are, how versatile they are, and just how much the Bills can dictate terms of personnel and what they want to do with the football based on those skill sets being on the field and then what it lends itself to, right? I, I keep going back to this because I love the idea. 
you can have a situation where your eligibles, uh, your non-offensive line, non-quarterback would be Davis, Diggs, Kincaid, Knox, and Cook. And you could put 12 personnel on the field and then go empty. And that has just got to be the biggest nightmare imaginable for a defense because you can just have so many matchups problems that you can introduce, not to mention if you just specifically focus on Knox and Kincaid, whether it's uh, winning down the seam because they have size and athleticism, uh, middle of the field, obviously, uh, using them as weapons for yards after catch. I mean, there's so much these guys can do, and it's unlikely that you're going to have enough personnel to match up defensively uh, to really give yourself a chance because there's going to be some mismatches out there. And and that's where I get really excited about this duo. Next one here comes from Ben, and it's it's a little bit like the last one here. So this will be the Knox and Kincaid segment of Herd Mentality. But Ben says, there's obviously lots of hype and questions about Kincaid. There are many people who think Knox will suffer from Kincaid. If he turns out to be as good as the analysts believe he will be, it would seem to me that Knox could actually benefit from Kincaid's presence. How many teams have two linebackers that can cover two athletic tight ends? Defenses will have to make a decision regarding who will cover each. I suspect they would choose their better coverage linebacker or safety to take on Kincaid. Wouldn't that leave Knox with the lesser coverage player? Ben, this is exactly the dilemma that we're talking about for opposing defenses against the Bills. So the the simple answer here is yes. Generally speaking, Kincaid can be an asset to Knox uh, because of the attention that he potentially will command if he reaches the ceiling we all think he's capable of. But I I think where I want to go with this answer outside of just saying, yes, I agree with you, is generally speaking, I don't think that Dalton Kincaid's arrival has much impact at all on Dawson Knox and his role in the offense. I think Dawson Knox is going to continue to do what he's done for the last two seasons. I think the players that are impacted by Dalton Kincaid's arrival is Gabe Davis, is the this mix of slot players. So if you look to last year, the Cole Beasley, Isaiah McKenzie, Jamison Crowder role, the slash Kolo Shakir, those are the players that are impacted. I think Knox is going to do what Knox has always done. And then the Bills are going to use Kincaid to eat into some of those other players. So I, I, I think Kincaid's arrival is a benefit to Knox while also simultaneously not having an impact to the, the, the volume and market share that Dawson Knox has commanded over the last couple of seasons. I think that continues. Next one here comes from Mike. Mike says, what do we do if Teron Johnson gets injured? And do you think it is handled differently during the game in which he is injured versus when the Bills have time to plan between games? Fun question here, and I'll tell you what, uh, losing Taron Johnson is not a not good. That's not a player you want to go down. Uh, I think the the answer that I'll give you here is Saran Neal, and the reason I bring that up is because we saw Teron Johnson get injured last year, and it was a short injury. It was in it was in the Cincy game, the the Monday night game where Demar Hamlin went down. Taron Johnson got injured, and they brought in Saran Neal. Now, I understand you had a part of your question in here about, well, if the Bills had time to plan between games, what does that look like? And I'm glad that you bring that up because I think that would open up more opportunity and more possibilities. And I think that player becomes Dane Jackson. And Dane Jackson's a player that even going back to his time at Pitt before I ever considered him for the Buffalo Bills, I thought his home in the NFL could be as a slot player. Uh, A lot of that was rooted in his physicality, his willingness to fit the run and play downhill and tackle 
uh, but also that I thought that um, him playing in the slot with more spacing, right, more help at times was better for some of his athletic deficiencies. Um, and so I think that you could look at Dane Jackson as a, a very logical choice there. I think uh, you could see the Bills do a lot of big nickel and, and maybe Taylor Rapp would get some opportunities there. Um, maybe Cam Lewis, but I think it's okay. If it happens during a game, Saran Neal's the logical point, a player to get us out of it. And then from there, I think you look at Dane Jackson. And then from there, I think it's like this Cam Lewis, Taylor Rapp conversation. Fun question. Next one comes from Jeff. Jeff says, how concerned are you with the ages of our core defensive players? I love looking at the roster and seeing Von Miller, Micah Hyde, Jordan Porter, Trey White, Leonard Floyd, et cetera. But father time is undefeated and every player declines sooner or later. Do you think this could be a concern as soon as this season or am I overthinking it? I think this is something to be mindful of. I don't know that there's a huge implication this year, uh, but I mean, yeah, some of these key players on the Bills defense are aging. Um, I don't look at Trey White as a player in that bucket. He's 28 this year, right? He turns 29 in January. Um, and so I, I, I don't know that I'm, I'm as concerned there. Um, Leonard Floyd is a player you mentioned. I, I'm not sure he's more than a one-year player, so I don't look at him as a nucleus-type guy for this roster. Von Miller, for sure, right? 34, coming off of an ACL tear with five years left on his contract. You don't love that, but you know if there's a guy that you feel like has a chance to be meaningful for several more seasons, it's a genetic freak like Von Miller. And then Micah Hyde and Jordan Poyer, for sure. But, I mean, Jordan Poyer was awesome last year. And, and you go back to, to 2021, and I thought that was Poyer and Hyde's best season together. And it's safety, right? Like, you would think replaceability is probably the easiest at safety. But I would also make sure that we're mindful of some of the good young players that are on the defense, like Ed Oliver, like Greg Rousseau, like what we're hoping uh, for Kyer Elam, Taron Johnson, right? Like there's... Matt Milano, there's a lot of players that aren't necessarily old that are um, exciting. But yeah, I think Brandon Bean has a, a big job ahead of him to make sure that he's replenishing this roster by hitting on draft picks. And I would say that there's been some missed opportunities there uh, that's going to put more stress on his ability to do it moving down the line and making sure that you're replenishing this talent as it ages with meaningful young talent that is you know, lesser in terms of contracts because they're on rookie deals, but also guys that you're developing. And I think we need to see some of that uh, start to happen at an accelerated pace than what we've seen recently. All right, folks, we got some fun stuff to get into here right after a very, very quick break. The next one today comes from Jason. Jason says, I loved your episode on Big Baller Bean with Greg Thompson. One criticism I have that I'm surprised you didn't mention is his propensity to trade up to target certain players with other similar graded players at the position still available. And he references Dalton Kincaid, Kyer Elam, Cody Ford as some examples. Do you feel like that's a weakness? With our struggles in round two and three, trading away round four is giving up a valuable pick. Yeah, Jason, I think this is fair. Um, I don't think you can know for certain um, if they didn't have to trade up to get certain players and you know, what the domino effects are there because they're significant. But generally speaking, I'm not a fan of trading up. I'm really not. I think if you need a quarterback, go trade up and get your guy. But there's very few times where I would advocate for 
moving up. And I think that's been pretty transparent in my analysis throughout the years on this podcast. I want as many darts to throw at the board as possible. Drafting is hard. It's an inexact science. Give yourself the most opportunity to hit on picks by having the most possible picks. And so, yeah, I don't really believe in moving up for non-quarterbacks. So, um, yeah, I think that's a fair criticism. And we'll never know the opportunity cost, right? You could speculate. um, But it would be logical and reasonable to think that there's some missed opportunity because of that. Um, Now, we'll see, right? I mean, we'll see what happens with Kincaid. We'll see what happens with Kyer Elam. He stuck or he stayed and picked Greg Rousseau. That looks like a pretty good move. Moved up for Tremaine Edmonds. That seems like that was a worthwhile move up. Josh Allen, obviously. Cody Ford, you can definitely be critical of that. Um, So a mixed bag of results, just like uh, drafting always is. But yes, I think it's a fair criticism that um, I wish was different about Brandon Bean. And I'm already anticipating it, right? He's got all these draft picks for next year, and I've already talked myself into knowing that, look, he's going to trade up because he gets antsy and wants to go get guys, and he's even said that out loud. Next one is from Christian. Christian says, question for you. There's been a lot of discussion around meaningful competition on the Bills. Elam, Benford, Jackson at cornerback, for example, and the significant the significance of it for development. Can you highlight any uh, significant examples of a player unlocking their potential due to having more off-season competition for a starting job? This could be from the Bills or otherwise. Um, I I can think of a lot of examples, but I want to bring up two here, one that is for the Bills and one that's not the Bills. Uh, For the Bills, the player that really stands out to me is Levi Wallace. I feel like the Bills tried to replace him for a number of years, and he just kept winning the job, whether it was EJ Gaines, Kevin Johnson, Josh Norman, Philip Gaines, right? There's been players that were continuously kind of brought in that were nipping at his heels, but um, they can never really fully unseat him. And I thought that led to Levi Wallace playing his best football. Uh, So that would be a Bills example. As a non-Bills example, the one that immediately comes to mind is Aaron Rodgers, uh, where Aaron Rodgers was, you know, I guess, was he in decline? I don't know if he was in decline, but they drafted Jordan Love in the first round. And this guy loses his mind, right? He becomes the NFL MVP two years in a row um, after bringing in Jordan Love, who was, you know, is their succession plan. It took a little bit longer because of that. Um, but, you know, that's a, an example of it. But I think you see that across the league. I think it's a, a standard for roster construction. And you want guys to earn jobs. And, you know, iron sharpens iron. I think that that stuff can be cliche, but I, I believe in it. I think it's true. Last one here comes from Thomas. Thomas says, over the years, I've noticed a progression in the cadence, tone, and mannerisms in which you speak on the podcast. Example, your shout-outs to the everydayers or how you introduce a sponsor during a break. Did, do you take any public speaking or podcast recording specialist-type classes to strengthen this skill? Your consistency, preparation, and delivery is top-notch professional, in my opinion, and just another differentiator as to why I listen to Lockdown Bill's versus other Bills podcasts. I think a lot of followers would love to know some of the behind-the-scenes work that goes into podcast, aside from the obvious. Fun question, Thomas, and I appreciate the opportunity to kind of peel back the layers and, and share some stuff with you guys. I, I tend to take these opportunities when I can from time to time. Uh, as far as if I've ever taken any classes on podcasting or public speaking, uh, the only thing I've done is I took a public speaking class in 2005 during my freshman year of college. Uh, that was helpful, but that was a long time ago. Um, and I took one speech and debate class in high school, my senior year. So I had a little bit of a run there. Uh, but what I really attribute 
anything positive that you just brought up, I would say it just comes down to reps. Um, I've been doing this podcast daily since 2019. I've my other podcast, Lockdown NFL Scouting, which was draft dudes, same type concept. Did that? I have done that daily since 2016. I think when you consider both podcasts, I mean, I'm over 3,500 episodes since 2016. And when you factor in the amount of radio work that I do, live broadcasts, guest appearances on other podcasts, I think I'm well over 4,000 episodes, right? So that's just a lot of reps. And as you do something for longer and you do it with at the volume that I've done it, I think you should just generally improve. And I, I'm glad to see that you at least feel like that's true through um, being a consumer of this podcast for a number of years. Uh, on top of just reps, I do a lot of self-scouting. I, I think I've listened back to just about every episode I've ever done of this podcast. And in doing so, I become keenly aware of my own tendencies, things that annoy me, things that I wish I didn't do. Um, and I don't think I've fixed everything all the time, but I'm, I'm aware of them and I try to improve those things. Uh, preparation is key for me. I, I put a lot into every episode in terms of developing show outlines, uh, developing how I want to deliver my thoughts and articulate different ideas making sure that I have good data to support any opinion that I have and that I'm not just impulsive and going off of emotion. There's reasons behind every opinion that I have, even if it's wrong. Um, and so I prepare a lot, and I think that allows me to deliver uh, a, a good show. Um, I would say YouTube has been huge um, for my personal growth. Um, I'll tell you what, I, I, I attribute a lot to YouTube because before this podcast was on YouTube, it was just audio. And when it was just audio, I would hit record, say what I needed to say. If I didn't like it very quick, erase that, restart it, you know, go back. And if I didn't like the way I said something, it was very easy to edit and, and fix on the fly. When I started doing YouTube, I realized that the editing work from the video side was going to be a lot. And I needed to be able to deliver it in one take if possible. And that allows me to focus, right? Like the first few times I was really nervous, but I've been doing YouTube for like, I don't know, is it two years now or something like that? And that element, that dynamic of it being a video, it's a recording of me doing the podcast um, and me wanting to do it in one take and not have to do a million edits, I think allowed me to kind of take another step. But I, I, obviously, I think a lot of it also is just my approach, right? I, I want to be honest with you every day. I want to be authentically myself every single day. And I want to be a podcast that I would want to listen to. And I've said this before, and I mean this in the best possible way. I feel deeply burdened for every single person that pushes play on this podcast. I want it to be worth your time. I ask you to listen to a podcast every single day, and I need to make sure that it's worth it. And so that impacts everything that I do. What, the quality that I try to provide, the analysis that I try to deliver, the creativity that I try to attack different things from, it's all because I want to deliver a podcast that I would want to listen to and make it worth your time and that so that you'll keep me in your podcast feed for as long as possible, right? All of that stuff I think about as I approach this every single day. And I never know when it's going to be someone's first ever time that they listen to the show and, and their entire decision on whether or not to keep listening or not rides on how I did that day. And, and if I have an off day and it's that day and they never come back, well, I missed an opportunity. So being deeply burdened in the best possible ways to, to be the best version of myself influences so much of what I try to do on this podcast. So appreciate the question, Thomas. I hopefully, hopefully that gave you some good insight into 
my process and my approach and in some areas that I can point to that I believe had have allowed me to have success in this space. So there you go. All right, folks, really appreciate you guys being here today and uh, excited for the rest of the week. Tomorrow on the podcast, my plan is to go through the athletic survey. The athletic did a fan survey on the Buffalo Bills, 25 questions. I want to give you my answers that I submitted for that. And then later in the week, Bruce Nolan. It's going to be a fun one. So don't miss any of that. Hit the subscribe button. Make sure that you take a second to rate, review, and share the podcast. Have a great rest of your day. Go Bills. And I look forward to catching up with you again tomorrow.